Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the book of Ephesians and for the, the honesty and the courage that Paul showed as he wrote to that church. For, Father, you and your wisdom knew that as he wrote those words, he'd be writing them for us as well, for others, for the whole body of Christ throughout the time of the church and, and into eternity. For you said that though the world and all that it holds and the universe itself will pass away, your word will never pass away. And so, Father, it has eternal and lasting meaning, eternal purpose, and eternal application. And this morning, Lord, we're conscious of the fact that what Paul said to one church long ago, correcting, admonishing, guiding, encouraging, and teaching, he meant for us as well. Even if we don't share in all the details of their circumstances, Father, there's enough in common. Certainly our sin and our desire to walk in Christ, those things are what matters. Those things draw all members of the body of Christ together in purpose. And so this letter, Father, it talks to us just as much as it did them. And I'm thankful, Father, that you cared for us not so much or not only that you would save us and call us together, but you cared, Father, to instruct us throughout the ages with a word that is never changing, always true, always dependable and trustworthy. But now, Father, the question remains, will your children hear you? Are they listening? Are their hearts open? Are we quick to agree with what we hear, but assume it's spoken to the one sitting next to us? Father, I pray that our hearts would hear these words as if we were the only one in this room. That the Spirit would speak to us personally, that we would accept it as the Word of God. And then, Father, help us to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there comes a time in every church family when tough words have to be spoken. There are times when our leaders give us direct counsel, when they admonish us to live up to our calling in Christ. And they do so because, after all, no one in the body of Christ is perfect. No one is above correction. But the problem comes sometimes because in polite society, we're supposed to shy away from confrontations and difficult conversations. We do that because we worry about perceptions. We worry about hurting someone's feelings or losing friendships. Because polite company is supposed to overlook the flaws that each of us have and, and the idiosyncratic behaviors that we bring into a community. And I'll tell you, there's no society more polite in that sense than church society. And then that's a good thing, obviously. We're, we're supposed to be concerned with preserving relationships. We're supposed to act in love. We're supposed to overlook those things around us that might annoy us at times, and that's all fine. But friends, when those flaws stand in the way of our corporate pursuit of godliness or the mission of the church in general, then we have to respond. We, we have to expect our leaders at that point to confront issues. The body has to rally around the weaker members of ourselves and support them. And ultimately, if things aren't improving, then the leadership has the responsibility to take the necessary action for the sake of the body at large. And as necessary, we may have to rebuke or even expel or somehow discipline the offending member or members that we have in our body. And I'm bringing this up because in Paul's letter today, he is going to move in that direction off of the teaching he's been giving in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And in the New Testament, we have a number of Paul's letters all focused on this same concern, the concern of misbehaving, or we could say spiritually immature Christians, churches. And when I talk of that theme, you probably 
run immediately to think of the two letters Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, those letters are traditionally seen as the letters to a carnal church, to a misbehaving or spiritually immature church. And when you read those letters, you see Paul recording the many shortcomings of that body of believers, the way they operated the church, including the way they operated in spiritual gifts, which is the topic of chapter 4 in Ephesians. And so Paul wrote those letters to correct them. And as you read those letters, you find him moving back and forth between words of encouragement and teaching, but then also words of admonishment. Corinth, unfortunately, did not corner the market on carnality or immaturity. There was another church in the first century that struggled and often could not rise above its pagan origins. And that church gets not two letters in the New Testament, but three. And I'm speaking, of course, of the church of Ephesus. Because besides the letter of Ephesians, which we're studying, there are two other letters Paul wrote to the leader of that church, the pastor of that church, Timothy. And when you add together with those three, the short letter that Jesus writes to Ephesus in the book of Revelation, you begin to see just how important this church was in Scripture, how much God put emphasis on what was going on in that particular city. And so today we find ourselves in the midpoint of chapter 4 in Ephesians. That's where you should be looking in your Bibles this morning. Up to this point, Paul has explained the purpose of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. And what we've learned so far has told us that the Lord has gifted the body of believers, the body of Christ, with a diversity of special abilities. And God intended that each of us would take that special ability, that spiritual gift, and put it to use in service to Him so that we can strengthen one another in the body of Christ. Such that as we serve in our spiritual gift, we make others spiritually stronger around us, which in turn allows them to help us in our weaknesses. And so the cycle continues. It's a wonderful symbiotic relationship, one to many in the body of Christ. But we also learned that that process only works if we participate in the body of Christ with our gifts and we do it in such a way that we preserve the intended purpose and usefulness of that gift. So in other words, gifts have to be developed before they can be put to great use within the body. For example, I have a gift of teaching. It's my contention that that's my spiritual gift. But I can't use that gift effectively in the body of Christ until I've applied myself to developing my knowledge and my skills in that regard. Now, that doesn't deny the supernatural origins of the gift to simply say I have to work with it. It just reflects that God had a purpose in equipping me, and part of that purpose was to stimulate me to engage in the good works that I will grow through. It's spending time with God through His Spirit so that I develop into the mature man of Christ that God wanted me to be. And that's the same purpose, same goal that God has for all of us in giving us a spiritual gift in the church. But secondly, even if I am working with my gift, there's another level of control that the church has to apply if we're going to get the value out of spiritual gifts. And that second level is we have to regulate the use of gifts in the body so that they work together in harmony. You can't have literally everyone doing everything simultaneously. That's not edifying. So we have times and we have places and we'll even have seasons when particular individuals in the body are especially important to us because of their spiritual gifts. And conversely, there'll be seasons when perhaps we don't need everyone's gift in the same way. If we regulate that properly, everyone has a place, everyone has a role, everyone is growing, everyone is maturing together in unity. That's idealistically what God has in mind in the body. But if we leave someone behind, which is a nice way of saying somebody is not contributing with their gift, or conversely, If we just allow everyone to do whatever they want with whatever they have at any time and put no regulation on it, 
then the gathering of the body of Christ will deteriorate. And I think within a relatively short period of time, you find it descending into anarchy and confusion. Certainly the letters Paul wrote to Corinth would suggest that that was the outcome in their case. So in the letters that Paul wrote to Corinth, you see Paul commanding them to grow up spiritually, to stop thinking and acting like children. He uses that term. He'll use it again today, which is why I'm mentioning it. He asks them to mature in their behavior and in their understanding. Childlike behavior in that case would mean thinking and acting not like literal children, but like the unbelieving world. That's what being like a child would mean. So that means holding on to the same bad thinking, holding on to the same false teaching, or conceding to the same temptations that grip the world, embroiled in the same disputes, or exhibiting the same pride, or being contemptuous, or being jealous. I mean, the things that mark normal humanity cannot mark normal Christianity. And these same problems existed in Ephesus, which is why I gave you that introduction. Back in chapter 4, at this moment, now starting in verse 14, we will take a slightly negative tone in what you hear from Paul. And I wanted to prepare you for that because it's not uncommon for Paul to follow a part of teaching or encouragement with some admonishment so that the church understands they have some work to do if they're going to meet the needs of the teaching that Paul just delivered. So having explained spiritual gifts as tools to strengthen and mature the body, now he is going to admonish the church for failing to use their gifts to the appointed outcome. And just as a a further preface here, we know he's writing to a certain group of people long ago who had a certain situation. Yes. But as I said in my prayer, don't think past our current circumstances too quickly. Let's give some considered thought to whether what we're hearing has some particular meaning for us individually in the body today. And I don't say that with any subtext. I have no particular person or persons in mind, Todd. But I want to make sure everybody understands. I want to make sure everybody is thinking reflectively on the word. Let's go to chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. Paul says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Back in verse 14, Paul begins with the Greek word hina. It just means in order that, or as my English Bible translated it, as a result. So Paul's saying that the church's spiritual gifts were given to the church to drive our collective maturity, and God accomplishes that spiritual growth in Christians through gifts in order that we would stop acting like children. Spiritual maturity is supposed to result from the proper operation of our gifts. But spiritual maturity is supposed to result in proper behavior. In other words, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how much spiritual maturity you gain through Bible study or showing up at church or serving in your gift or whatever other churchy things you like to do in your life. If it does not result in you acting the part, then it means nothing. If you can talk the theological talk, but you aren't walking the walk, well then it's nothing more than vanity. It's just puffing up ourselves with our own piety. Notice Paul defines being children here in the body of Christ as being tossed in waves 
and carried about by the wind. And these are two metaphors, obviously, and he uses them to deal with or to explain two aspects or two qualities to being childlike. Remember, being childlike does not mean being like a child. It means being like an unbeliever. The first metaphor emphasizes how immature Christians have a spiritual life that's out of control. Now, when I say out of control, I don't mean crazy. I don't mean bizarre. I mean it in the way Paul does here, technically speaking, someone who has not gained control over their own spiritual growth. They're tossed. They're carried by others. They don't determine their spiritual course in life. They haven't done an inventory and determined, here's my strengths, and I'm going to put those to work for the body of Christ. And likewise, they have no insight into their spiritual weaknesses. They aren't seeking other gifts in the body to help with these particular weaknesses that they've determined that they have. That's someone who's in control of their spiritual growth, who's made a plan, and they're working the plan. And hope is not a plan. Hoping to become mature doesn't make it happen. I'm not saying that you in your own power drive your own spiritual maturity. Clearly, the Bible has already taught us that it's the work of the Spirit through the gifts of the body that are the means for God to do that. What I'm saying is you have to have a plan to take advantage of that work, of that spiritual power that God has put into the body of Christ. So people who are immature, childlike in their faith, they're just floating along. They're just jumping from one thing to the next. Paul says they become victims of the trickery of men scheming deceitfully to entrap the ignorant believer. That was the case in Ephesus. If you study the letters Paul wrote to Timothy, you find out that he was dealing there extensively with false teachers who were contending with Timothy's leadership. And they were trying to gain a foothold in the church, and they were succeeding to a degree, according to 1 Timothy, by gaining a foothold among the most immature and vulnerable within the church. That's where they found their mark. Spiritual children are not grounded, fundamentally grounded, by an appreciation for biblical truth, which is why they're capable of being tossed around by whatever comes their way. The phrase you see in English, they're tossed here and there by waves, that's actually one Greek word. And it's a euphemism in the Greek for confusion, for being confused. So in other words, when a new false teaching comes along into the church to tickle ears, well, the children in the church, the spiritually immature, they're the ones that follow after it in ignorance. They're so confused in their own understanding of their faith that they have no hope to stay on course. They're not grounded in what is right. So if a new spiritual book comes along, like the shack, or if some church program sweeps the nation like 40 Days of Purpose did, well, it captures the attention of spiritual children. They flock to that kind of stuff. Paul says they're carried away by every wind of doctrine. Another analogy there that talks to a second issue here. Wind suggests something fleeting. Something lacking substance, something that was here one moment, gone the next. And lacking maturity, these children of faith will chase after these latest spiritual fads, just like a child would chase after a leaf blowing in the wind. And those fads just come and go. Have you noticed that? They're here all of a sudden, next thing you know, whatever happened to that thing? Do you know why that is? Because they make no meaningful impact on the spiritual lives of believers. Even worse, those winds of doctrine distract the body of Christ from a proper study of God's word, which is the thing that produces lasting change in the life of a believer. Back when the whole 40 days of whatever was going on, my wife and I used to bemoan about the fact that on weekends when churches around the country were running that program, that was that many less churches with the Bible being taught on Sunday. It just robbed the church of any doctrine if there had been any to begin with. The root problem for every spiritual child 
is they have no plan for where they're going in their spiritual life. They don't understand the big picture of what God is doing for them through the church. They don't know what they're trying to achieve. It's just go through the motions, show up, and go home. And even in the best cases, they may volunteer to get involved, but they volunteer sporadically. And often they pick the place where they have no spiritual gifting because they don't know their spiritual gifting because they're not working a plan. And at the same time, they may pass up the very opportunities that God has set before them to serve somewhere in the church or to learn from some instruction, some class, some Bible study, something. They pass it up because they don't recognize that that's what they needed desperately. To sum it up, they participate in the faith somewhat like we would be a sports fan rooting for a football team. You ever heard the analogy that a football game is a game played by 22 men who desperately need rest? And it's watched by 50,000 people who desperately need exercise. You ever heard that? Well, I think similarly, spiritually immature children in the church are those who watch others at work in their spiritual gifts, though they desperately need to get in the game themselves. Now, everyone starts in the immature state. That's a given. Everyone starts a babe in Christ. So it's not unusual as we begin our walk with Christ to find ourselves in some of these situations. That's okay. It's okay in the sense that it's expected. But it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to be content with that place in life. So obviously, Paul wouldn't be talking in these terms to this church if it weren't for the fact that they have some of these problems, right? That their spiritual maturity is of concern. So in verse 15... He calls for the church to speak the truth in love. Now, what truth do you think he's talking about? What what truth needs to be spoken? Well, based on the context, and in fact, where we're going next as well, Paul is talking about the need to speak correcting words, admonishing words, exhorting words to those who needed it, concerning their need to mature, to participate in the body through their spiritual gift, to get a plan, as I call it. And as you'll see here in a minute, to put away sin as well. They're not doing the right things. They're not working in the right ways or maybe not in the right places. Whatever it is, they needed to hear that truth. So someone speaking in truth, though in love, he says, in love, that would mean encourage those who have some self-doubt about whether they can help or whether they have much to offer. Or we teach those who are acting in the wrong ways out of ignorance. Or we exhort those who are just lazy or hesitant. Or we admonish those who are acting in sin. That's what it means to speak truth in love. The only things we cannot do is to remain silent or to speak in such a way that we do it absent love for the person, a sincere desire for their best interests. But if we love one another, then it should be a given that we want each other to grow up in the maturity that comes with being a Christian, to be like Christ, as Paul says at the end of verse 15. We want to be like the one who leads us. Or at least that should be our goal. And so we serve one another in our gifts, we receive service from others, we speak in love when necessary, we do all of this to ensure that we're working as God intended. Now, if you want a preview of what it would look like if we actually did what Paul's asking that we would do, you only have to consider the analogy he gives us here in verse 16. Because he says, when everything is working in the right way, the first thing you'll have is a whole body. Now, we often use the term body of Christ, but I wonder if we don't use the word body in the wrong way. We're thinking of it maybe in the wrong way. I think sometimes we use the word body merely as a synonym for collection. Like Mozart has a wonderful body of work, which is a way of saying a collection of stuff he did. Now, that's not the meaning in the Bible. That's not how the word body is being used in the Bible. In the Bible, the term means literally one single organism. 
one body, as if you couldn't distinguish a piece from itself. It's all one, though obviously made up of different parts. So if the church is to run properly, it would arrive at a single, like-minded group of people moving in the same direction with a common purpose led by the Spirit of God. Like the human body itself. Each part playing an essential role, but you don't think of your body as parts. Do you? you don't think about you being a collection of parts. You know you have an arm and a leg, but you don't think of them that way. Similarly, that's how we would behave if everything were working right. Now, that's idealistic. I'm not saying it's easily achievable. I'm not saying it's impossible. But Paul is using that as our north star. That's our target. That's where we're going. And Paul says, when you get there, you'll find yourself fitted and held together. Those are two different Greek words. They have two different meanings. They complement one another. And when you put them together, they're very reminiscent of a description of how a stonemason does his work properly. Fitting stones, if you want to imagine, say this wall was a stone wall as part of some construction project, some larger building. And they would bring stones from a quarry and they drop them here for me to work on to put them into the wall. But the quarry is not a place of precision cutting. They get close. They're within the ballpark. But it's my job to fit them to the intended purpose, to the place they're going to have in that wall. So i got to size it up. i got to look at each stone and say, that one's close, that one's not so good, I need one more like this one. I find the one that's closest to what I'm looking for. But even then, it's not shaped to fit the hole perfectly. So then I start doing a little gentle wearing away of the rough edges. I smooth it out, get it just the way I want it. And then I put it in its place. Now, that stone has been fitted to serve a place in that wall. None of the other ones would work. That's the one and only stone that after I've done my job, that's the only one that will fit in that place. And then after I put it there, I've got to hold it there. And that stone would generally not be held by mortar. Not that they didn't use it occasionally, certainly. But in many cases, the stones are not held by mortar. They're simply held there by the support of the surrounding stones. If everything is fitted perfectly well together, nothing moves anywhere. It's all seamless. In fact, if you go look at some of the construction they did in Israel around the Temple Mount and the retaining wall, the stones that we still have, these are massive 30-ton stones. They're fitted so precisely you can't even put a sheet of paper between them. And this is after centuries, after millennia. They're held together by the fact that there are other stones around them that are equally well fitted to their appointed places. You get in the picture? Starting to understand how that relates to the body of Christ? That's our goal. Our goal is that our spiritual gifts, your spiritual gift, my spiritual gift, Those are tools in the hands of Christ by his spirit. He knows where each of you fit in the wall, the mosaic that he's building here at Oak Hill Bible Church and in the body of Christ in general. And he's using others around you to wear off your rough edges. And yes, some of you have rough edges. I do too. They need to be gently worn away. So when I interact with you and my spiritual gift and you give me the benefit of yours... Perhaps your spiritual gift comes to bear on my pride. Perhaps your spiritual gift comes to bear on my uh, fears or my anxieties or something I have that's getting in the way of what God wants me to do. So he bumps us together for a while and lets the work happen. Similarly, there's something you don't know that maybe I can teach you. And so that's how you get some benefit from me. And that's happening all around us. God puts people in places to serve a purpose for others. And then he holds us together by the ones who surround us, by those who are there. The ones who teach us and strengthen us for the walk ahead. The ones who encourage us when we have a trial. The ones who pray for us continually or perform music for us so that we can worship. Or cook and clean and mow and paint to nurture and comfort us in the surroundings that we occupy. They notice when we're missing. They call us when we're absent here. 
They correct us when we're in trouble. They do all the things that those stones around us are supposed to do, so we stay in place. Not just in terms of staying a part of this church, but stay in the grace of God. Stay in the will of God. And yet, as I said earlier, you've got to regulate this process according to the proper working of each part, Paul says. And that phrase, proper working, it's so beautifully worded in the Greek. The Greek word translated proper, it literally means poetic meter. Poetic meter. And the word working can mean energy or action. So here's what Paul's saying. He's comparing the functioning of everyone together in this room like poetry in motion. That's what he said. It's like watching poetry in motion. Like, like all the instruments in a symphony playing together in harmony. I see glimpses of this ideal at times here. Like when we all work together in service to a family in need. And this is a common thing here. A family has a baby. And you know, we're just great at that, I think. Generally, we're pretty attentive to taking care of people with families. New dad over here shaking his head. Yes, thank you for the, thank you for the endorsement. Or when we've come together at the church here for days of working at the church. A work day here at the church. It's like a symphony. Everybody's got their hands busy doing something. It's like it all happens. I don't even know how it happens. Or like when we've rallied to help missionaries in need, when we've had a financial need, some kind of burden. It's just amazing to me how often this little church can punch above its weight in poetry and motion, as Paul says. That's ideal, and that's what we're aiming for. But I also think it's true in every church's life. I know it's true in ours, too. When things aren't quite in sync sometimes, some parts are moving, but some aren't. Some instruments are in tune, but others not so much. But when everything is in sync, Paul says, it will cause the body to grow. I think when he says grow here, he's speaking primarily about the individual spiritual growth that you and I will experience. That is, each of us moving away from childlike spirituality and moving toward a more mature perspective, adopting mature behaviors and the like. But don't overlook the fact that I think that implies a secondary level of growth. That is numeric growth. The unbeliever will come and they'll notice, you guys got something good going there. Tell me more about your Christ. Because, friends, think about it, the world is naturally attracted to symphonies and poetry. Similarly, the immature Christian who's being underserved in their existing body, they may take note of a mature, stable Christian who isn't being tossed around by the fads that are taking over their own church. Or even the mature Christian who's coming looking for a place they can grow further, they'll flock to communities that reflect their values and reflect their own desire to grow. And above all, friends, if we're moving as one and we're growing as a result, mature things multiply. Mature Christians naturally go out and witness to what they're about to a world that needs to know these things. So in other words, the very things this church wants to do so badly that we've all talked about, grow and reach a wider audience and become more like Christ, those things are best accomplished, Paul says, when you grow with one another spiritually right here. When you come and participate, when you become a part of something God is doing through your gift. Paul says at the end of verse 16, we need to build each up, our body up, in love if you want to get where you want to go. Speaking truth and love about what needs to change, speaking truth and love about what is going well, about how each of us needs to become a bigger part of this body. That's what it looks like when every joint is supplying what was intended, what it needs. It's a beautiful thing. But as we started with a minute ago, that only works in a culture in which we're willing to talk honestly and transparently and roll up our sleeves and get to work. We need to drop the pretense of our perfect lives. Everything is fine at home. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. Nice to see you. Fine. Thanks. Fine. See you next week. Fine. We're not perfect. Our lives are not all that. We're not all buttoned up and tight. Nothing's great. 
And that means we have to stop depending on superficial relationships where they exist. We need to speak honestly about where we want to go as a body and how individually we're a part of that. We need to speak in humility and we need to listen with patience. And the biggest threat to unity beyond everything that's already been said is sin within the members of the body. And by sin, I don't mean the occasional personal faults that we all bear, that we all know daily. I mean lifestyles of sin. Adopting patterns of ungodliness that are condoned and even permitted, encouraged within the body of Christ. And those sins are often the kind that fly below the radar because they're the common worldly style of sin. You know, we typically are very quick to get on the big stuff. It's the other stuff that we don't address that can be the real problem. And that's where Paul goes to finish out what we're doing this morning. He addresses this key enemy, the enemy of sin in the body. In the rest of chapter 4, we're just going to step a short way into it today in verse 17. So having admonished the church to be a bigger part of what's going on, to grow in the community of work through our gifts, then Paul says, verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Let me try to help you understand where Paul's going here, because it may seem as though he's just suddenly changed topic, but he hasn't. He has just taught on the purpose of spiritual gifts. He's now exhorted the church, you need to live up to the call of being a mature Christian. You need to make that your goal. So the connection there is, you've got the tools... But put them to work, get a plan, get a goal. Don't assume it just happens by assimilation because you show up once in a while. Become purposeful. And now he's going to say, become purposeful about spiritual growth in place of being devoted to the wrong things in life. To the sinful ways of living. Paul calls them out for the failings that they have in this regard. And here's an example, I think, of Paul doing what he just called the church to do. That is speaking truth in love. He says, first, the church must no longer walk as Gentiles walk. Now, in this context, Gentiles obviously is a euphemism for unbeliever. Those Gentiles of Ephesus, in other words, who are not a part of the body of Christ. So in this case, Gentiles are the sinners, the unbelievers of the city. And therefore, in applying that to the church, when he says, stop walking as Gentiles, what he's saying is, those Gentiles around you, they represent your past. It's like you looking back through time when you look at what's going on in the city around you. Once before, the believers who are in the church now, they live like the rest of the city. That is who they used to be. And so he's saying, you used to walk like them. Stop doing it. Stop being the person you used to be. That is to live, he says, in the futility of your mind. The Greek word for futility, it literally means emptiness. But it has a connotation of vanity to it. Like someone who thinks they know something they don't know. So unbelievers, Paul says, live in vanity. They live empty lives. No matter how much they try to fill their lives with joy or meaning, it never changes. And I'm not saying they know this. Obviously, they don't. But think about how the world lives and you get the sense of what Paul's saying. The unbelievers climb social and economic ladders that lead nowhere. They contend with one another in jealousy and and anger and greed, and they indulge their flesh in various ways, reaping all of the fruit of that sin. Paul says as a result of that vain lifestyle, he says they become callous to sin 
and its consequences. That is, they lack sensitivity to it. It just becomes the norm. They just take it for granted, right? Watch a YouTube video. Watch what's on the news. Look at what kids are listening to in their music, or adults for that matter. Look at what is now the norm for culture. Look how far it's degraded. Look how much sin we take for granted. And you can see instantly the callousness of the world when it comes to these things. You can't do anything anymore to be shamed. You cannot do enough bad stuff now to be shamed. You can't in the way we think of culture these days. Paul says, as that pattern continues, the consequences of it are that people, quote, give themselves over, he says, to sensuality. Now, the definition of the word sensuality here is important. Sensuality is the pursuit of any stimulation of the flesh. It's not merely sexual, though, of course, it includes sexual sin. Think about it properly. It's hedonism in all forms. Prompted by this emptiness in the spirit, what unbelievers do is they compensate by overstimulating the flesh part of them to make up for the gap that's missing in their spiritual side. So they practice every kind of impurity, Paul says, with greediness because they can't be satisfied. A little drink isn't enough. They drink some more. A little shopping isn't enough. So they max out their credit card. A little pornography is good, but only for a while. And so then they begin to seek for things that are even more offensive. A little money, a little power. A little recognition, none of that's enough. So they go looking for more. When it all falls apart, though, as it always does, then they shake their fists at God and the world and they complain that life's not fair. Paul says unbelievers follow this pattern because they are darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their hearts. They think they understand the world and themselves, but they have no clue. They don't understand how far they are from God. They don't realize that they're putting their faith in a world that's going to burn up one day. And they don't have a hope to avoid the eternal punishment that's awaiting them at their death. Not unless they come to know Christ. And that sin, the hardness that's driving this process, the heart, that was present from birth, the Bible tells us. Hardening their hearts as they move through life. So even when the gospel message might drop into their laps, the Bible says they don't find any interest in it. Only if and when the Lord chooses to penetrate their heart with the word by his spirit will they be awoken from this spiritual slumber and praise the Lord that he works that way for the benefit of the likes of us. Which is why Paul demands that the church in Ephesus stop living as if the wake up call had never come in their case, which it had. They were believers. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of sins were predominant in this church, but whatever they were, it's pretty obvious from what Paul says. They're not maturing They're not moving in the right direction. They seem, it would appear, to have a problem with honesty, maybe, with coveting. Later, you're going to see him talking about lying and stealing. I mean, it it looks like they're on to some pretty basic top ten commandment kind of sins. And it's just a given. It's the natural thing they do. In all, what we're saying is they have not yet made the transition of being merely a person who knows Christ into being a person who follows Christ. Their misuse or their lack of use of spiritual gifts was robbing them of that change, of that spiritual growth that would move them past these things. And their continuing pursuit of the world meant they were so sapped of energy and distracted, they weren't even giving their time and attention to the need of a spiritual growth plan. Now, that's probably a good takeaway for you today, by the way. Do you have a spiritual growth plan? If I cornered you, and I'm sure I'd have to for most of you all, if I cornered you and I said, tell me what your spiritual strengths are that you're using to serve others, and tell me what your spiritual weaknesses are, and what are you doing to get those addressed? If you can't answer those questions honestly, it's no sin, but it's a sign that there's some work ahead of you, right? It's a sign that you could do something if you wanted to. 
God knows what he would do with it. He'd fit you into a wall so perfectly and hold you there by those around you that you'd finally find your place, not only in the church, but in life. Do these words sound like they were written to you a little bit? I mean, in other words, do you feel this tug of war that Paul is describing? Are you still searching for that place God wants to fit you into your life, into the world? Maybe you've tried to start serving here a little bit, but yeah, nothing's really lit a fire under you. You're not really that excited. Nothing's really grabbed you yet. Maybe the world still has so much for you that you really don't have a lot of time for the church. I mean, it's there on Sundays when you can make it, and that's good enough. And I'm not counting church attendance as the key metric here. I'm just saying it's typically a pretty good reflection of where someone's heart is. Do you want to be around the body of Christ, or is it just sort of obligation? If that's you, then don't keep doing the same things over and over again while expecting a different result, as the saying goes. I've always heard it said that we can tell a lot about a Christian by looking at the checkbook and the calendar. Which today means I only have to look at your iPhone and I can cover both of those. (laughs) Rethink your priorities. Rethink your schedule. We should do things differently. We should refocus on participating in the body that we have before us here. We need to figure out what's God's purpose and the gift he gave me. And along the way, if someone has the courage to speak truth to you in love about what you're doing or not doing or how they can help you, hear them. Ask if the Lord is speaking to you through them before you have a sharp word in response. And friends, if we do these things, let's just all grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we're all together in the kingdom and these things are past concerns, wouldn't it be nice if we can all say to each other, it was because of the work God did in that church that I received that thing I wanted to hear from my Lord, which is well done, good and faithful servant. We'll all receive some praise. Let's see how much praise we can be worth when we stand before him in our judgment. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, I pray on behalf of those you've assembled here this morning and all who may hear what you've prepared in your word, I pray that you would forgive us, Father, for the ways in which we have remained immature despite all that you've done by your grace to make opportunities available for us to walk closer with you. We thank you, Father, for the men and women you've surrounded us with, many of whom are ahead of us in this walk and are using their strengths to serve our weaknesses. We ask you, Father, that you would grant us opportunity in our own spiritual strength, whatever we may have that you've given us, that we would serve another and do it selflessly and in love. We pray for our leaders, Father, that they would have the courage to speak in truth, but never without love. And we pray, Father, collectively that you'd open our ears and hearts to hear you truthfully when necessary so that we may respond. For we know a loving father disciplines his children for their own good. Most of all, Father, we thank you for the grace you've shown us in Jesus Christ through whom we've been saved because of his work, not our own. Because of his sacrifice and his death. We thank you, Father, for that gift, for Without it, none of the other things would even be possible. And we pray, Father, that any who may yet not know you would be called by what they've heard to reach out to you for the faith that saves and by that faith become a child of God. We pray for that outcome as well, Father. May all these things be to your glory and according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray.